Hello and welcome to this week's Leap of Faith. The music of Shulam Lemmer there. He's an American Hasidic singer from Borough Park, Brooklyn in New York City and the first born and raised Haredi Jew to sign a major record contract with a leading label. We'll hear his story and others in just a moment when author Yankee Factor joins us. Yankee has compiled over 200 stories as part of a series of online talks given during the lockdowns of the COVID-19 pandemic. Shortly, we'll hear plans for the first virtual National Holy Wells Day. Later too, I'll speak with the incoming president of the Methodist Church in Ireland, the Reverend Dr. Sai Yambasu, as he becomes the first national leader of colour in one of Ireland's four main churches. For many of us during the various lockdowns of the COVID-19 pandemic, it's been an opportunity to dial into online talks and presentations. It seems everyone loves a story. And one of these storytellers has been a regular contributor to The Leap of Faith, author, broadcaster and speaker Yankee Fackler. Yankee, welcome back. As I mentioned, everyone loves a good story and you've been fairly busy researching and presenting a few of your own. Yeah, fairly busy is probably a good description. Um, Since the beginning of COVID, I've delivered close to 200 um, Zoom talks. Uh, Sometimes I just literally pluck a subject out of the air because I think it's interesting. Sometimes I will read um, an article in a newspaper or online and either a word or a date or a person or a book will jump off the page and immediately in my mind I say, ah, here's something I'd like to get my teeth into. And really the whole exercise has been getting my teeth into these uh, couple of hundred uh, topics um, and trying to bring it to the Zoom audience, people who have been very relieved to have this sort of performance stroke entertainment uh, during COVID. So it's, it's a win-win. Why did you pick the story of Harry Houdini? Well, first of all, everyone has heard of Houdini. I don't know if I, I can't even name for you uh, any other uh, escape artist. And somehow everyone seems to know Houdini but I didn't know anything about Houdini, absolutely nothing. So when I started digging, I discovered, first of all, he was a rabbi's son. Now, there are lots of people that, who are rabbi's sons, but what he did when he was already very famous in the middle of the First World War, he got together with about 20 other rabbi's sons who were in show business, including Al Jolson, uh, Irving Berlin, these were all sons of rabbis, and he decided that he he called his benevolent fund the the rabbi's sons, and they collected a hell of a lot of money for the war effort. And I just I just thought that his whole uh, life story was fascinating. And uh, once I believed something is fascinating. I think that I'm able to get that across uh, to my audience, whether or not they are familiar with my topic or not. Why were there then a disproportionate number of Jewish code breakers at Bletchley Park during World War II? Okay, that's that's a good question. Um, I suppose because traditionally mathematics would be associated 
with Jews. Now, it's not exclusive, of course, but I suppose because of the very strong bias in Jewish families and Jewish homes towards study, and the fact that um, often Jews weren't allowed even to go to universities, so there was a lot of home study and a lot of tutoring, somehow mathematics was one of those portable uh, talents um, that seems to have been disproportionately represented um, in many Jewish families. And someone did the research and discovered that there were probably seven to eight times as many Jews in Bletchley Park than there should have been in terms of uh, the spread of population. You'd also talk about other heroes and heroines, including two people who were involved in saving the lives of Jews during World War II. One unknown. Well, yes. Ireland uh, has this uh, very uh, important lady called Mary Elms. Um, and she was saving hundreds of Jewish children in the south of France in the teeth of the Nazi um, uh, troops and she managed to spirit away um, like I say lots and lots of Jewish children and and after the war she did what many um, savers did nothing not a word and no one knew about this for decades and so I thought unearthing her story uh, was was important and then I came across more recently a Dutch woman also non-Jewish um, some people will have heard of the kinder transport. My own father was on the kinder transport. In other words, he was one of 10,000 uh, Jewish children who were allowed into Britain between December 1938 and September 1939 uh, from the uh, continent. And they were only allowed to come by themselves. They didn't come with their parents and the vast majority, including my dad, uh, never saw their parents again. When they got to England, well, there's a lot of, um, we, we know a lot about where they went, um, the schools they went to, the farms they went to, uh, and etc. And we also know about when they boarded their trains in Berlin, especially, um, what the scene was like um, at the train station saying goodbye to parents, um, only Quakers being allowed on the platform to help with the luggage, etc. And I've known a, a lot about this because obviously it's a subject that I'm interested in. But I never knew of the link between getting on a train in Berlin and arriving in Liverpool Street Station. How, how did that happen? And I discovered this uh, Dutch woman called Truce Weissmuller, and she was a banker's wife. So they had money, and she used that money and prestige to bamboozle Nazi officials. She traveled to Vienna, and banged on Eichmann's table. And sort of he gave her a dare 
He said, okay, if you can get 600 kids onto a train in Vienna within five days, I'll allow you to take them to England. And he was convinced that, you know, who this, this, this housewife, what, what, what's she gonna do? And she did it and she continued working. So she was the missing link. You tell some wonderful stories, as I said, over 200 of them have done so far. And I just want to touch off one or two more of them uh, to whet our listeners' appetite this evening. I was also intrigued by uh, one here, which says, say shalom to Shulam. Ah, so here and there in my talks, I brought in a bit of music just to, um, uh, you know, to, to, to be a bit different. And Shulam, is the most unlikely recording artist possibly in history. If you look at him, he wore, has walked straight off the set of any of the Jewish movies that take place um, either in Eastern Europe um, or in modern day ultra-Orthodox Jerusalem. He's got his side curls. Uh, he, he absolutely looks the part. And he is from there. And he is an active um, member of a Hasidic um, dynasty and fabulous voice. And all of a sudden, he lands a mainstream record contract. Not a, not a specialist label, mainstream. Incidentally, uh, Shulam has a very famous uh, cantor brother called Yankee and there are not many Yankees in the world and um, yeah Yankee Lemma uh, is, is also got a beautiful voice and the two of them sometimes do uh, duets and it's uh, uh, it's fabulous so because I love Jewish music I, and I love to share it uh, this was one of the evenings that I did and, and since then people have told me they, uh, they, they go into uh, YouTube and they've been listening to them and enjoying them. Well, we'll finish our chat this evening by listening to the music of Shulam Yankee Fackler. Thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith. Thank you. Well, did you know that there are over 3,000 holy wells in Ireland? And this Sunday, June 13th, is National Holy Wells Day. And to mark this, the first virtual event will take place on Sunday at 3 o'clock. Well, to tell us more, I'm joined in the studio this evening by Father Brian Grogan, former president of Milltown Institute of Theology and Philosophy in Dublin and associate professor of spirituality. Also here is Sister Helen Greeley. Helen is a sister of Our Lady of the Senegal and part of the movement known as Loving Sister Earth, set up in response to Pope Francis's challenge to protect planet Earth and work for universal harmony. You're both very welcome this evening. Sister Helen, can I begin with you? There are over 3,000 holy wells in this country. Where do they sit in the official practice of people's faith in Ireland? Well, in some places there is this day and it's an official day in their calendar. The priest might come along and say Mass and the people will gather for the whole day. And that's called a Passion Day. And that, there was many of those going on in past times and they were suppressed because they became social and rowdy events. <laughs> but in modern times, people were just so devoted, they've kept it up. In spite of so many things collapsing, people in their own areas want to do that. 
what, what we're focusing on in Loving Sister Earth is trying to revive this devotion right across the country because, as we said, there's 3,000 of them around, some of them not in use, and but some of them being reconstructed. But we want to focus on water, which is a critical ecological issue today. And we will look at that in a moment, but I'm still curious about the idea of the role of the well in a village and and I suppose where it came from. They would have been in many cases pre-Christian. Oh, absolutely. Um, They're around for about 10,000 years, the end of the last Ice Age. And the Druids had great respect and reverence. They linked water and life and divinity. And then when Patrick, St. Patrick came along, Uh, he recognised the sacredness of the wells and he and his followers, the great saints of those early times, blessed these wells and now they're named after them Mm. and there are several dedicated to Patrick around the country. There's about 40 to Bridget and Columkill, Columba and then all the local saints, Brendan, Attractor, Gubnet and you just keep going. Um. There's also the association of the cure from from it. Where's, where did that come from? Well, people did experience, especially of the eyes, I think. And research, a lot of research has been done in our times and scientists are telling that there's healing properties in some of these wells. So what, so it could, could literally be minerals or chemicals yes. in the water that, that have the same effect? Yeah. How did that sit then? Uh, again, it comes back to the idea uh, of, uh, for example, Rome's attitude towards this. Well, I just mentioned a while mm. ago that uh, there were suppressed devotion to them, but that was more to do with the rowdiness. Mm. I, Rome at the moment, and Laudato see the Pope wants us to be very much in touch with the earth and the care of the earth. So they'd be very much with it as a, masses were celebrated at them. So, How would you like to see that then unfold? What would you like to see happen? I would like to see more of the wells come into use um, right in some of the towns are being reconstructed at the moment. It seems to be in the air that people want to be in touch with the earth and want to really devote themselves to the many ecological issues that we're dealing with at the present. Also in the studio with us is Father Brian Grogan. Uh, Father Brian, you have a, a little insight as well for us into some of the, the folklore of the wells. Wells became, to my mind, a sort of coffee shop where people could sit and chat and talk about the the events of the community, weddings, marriages, deaths, um, births, the lot, and people emigrating, etc. Bit of matchmaking as well, I believe. Uh, matchmaking as well, indeed. But then the uh, Gaelic revival came along and Wells uh, and Celtic things gained a new popularity and... At the moment, um, we are seeing wells not just as isolated things across the Irish countryside, but within the global scope of water in the world. I would love to see people um, learning to fall in love with water because it's only when you love something that you'll defend it. What's happening is that water is becoming more and more scarce uh, due to climate warming. And then uh, commerce is beginning to take over, whereas most of us would believe that water is a natural human right. Um, The big firms are beginning to snaffle all the water that they can and um, sell it. 
So it means that the poor who've had difficulty already in accessing water uh, won't be able to get water or have to pay an exorbitant price for it and they don't have the money. And so um, quite an amount of drought um, running across the world and um, with drought comes famine, with famine comes death. They begin to die. It's interesting too that, you know, when when we start searching for life on other planets, the very first thing we look for is some semblance of water there. If we found a single plant on Mars and much more on Venus, uh, the whole scientific world would go mad. It would be such a wonderful thing if we'd one dandelion, as it were. Um, yes, without water, there's nothing. A totally barren um, planet. And that's where we're heading if we don't um, really get a grip on mm. climate change and learn to go gently on water. Let's <laughs> actually hear from some of the voices associated with one of the wells in Ireland in Ballyhigh in County Kerry. My name is Brendan Moriarty. I'm part of the History and Heritage Group in Ballyhigh. Uh, we're here at the well and it dates back to 1934 when the statue was actually put in the well. Now, it, there was people praying at the well long before that, but 1934, the, the statue was put there and uh, some of the local people got together and they made a collection, including my grand-aunt, who would have been the postmistress, Nora Supple, at the time. The pattern day then is there's a mass said uh, at the well on the 8th of September, which would be the birth day of Our, uh, our Lady, uh, and every uh, 8th of September, the bishop comes to say Mass at the well. Uh, you could have any, anything up to between five and 10,000 people at the well, and we love to see a big crowd uh, coming. It's, it's a huge day in Belly High. The um, uh, pubs, of course, would be packed out on that day. They'd have, they'd have music, and uh, it's good for the shops as well, of course, on, on, on that particular day. The voice of Brendan Moriarty there at Our Lady's Well and Grotto in Ballyhigh in County Kerry. What's the focus of the virtual event that's coming up? The National Holy Wells Day. Yes, we're praying for the protection and fair distribution of water. And in previous years, it's going, Loving Sister Earth is going for seven years now. We're small and we're, but it's significant because it has really taken off. And the Holy Wells Day is going on for five years. And previous to this, we had people gather at the wells and we were in collaboration with a group in the north of Ireland and they were going to many, many wells in Donegal and Derry and it was great that it crossed the border and one of the wells was actually the border line, which was wonderful. Before we finish this evening, let's go to another well um, and this time Ard Firth. Sister Helen, can you give us again a little insight into this particular well? Well, Ardfert and St. Brendan, the name goes together. St. Brendan was born nearby and the well, also called Tubernamalt, was dedicated to him. And Brendan is one of our great saints. We believe that he might have discovered America. <laughs> and um, Tim Severn mm-hmm. tried to see, was it possible in the 70s? But And the book that he was written in his honour, the Navigatio Sancti Brindani, um, was written in the 8th century, but it is believed that it influenced the people like Christopher Columbus. It was a bestseller right across Europe in all the different languages. 
So um, they have great devotion to St. Brendan there. And I know I was in uh, at the well and I could feel the energy of the people. They just loved their holy well. My name is Tommy O'Connor. I'm a local historian and I'm here at Weathers Well, also known as Tobernamult, in the townland of Tobernamort, just about two miles from the village of Artford in northern County Kerry. This well has been used by... The local people really is a place of pilgrimage uh, for many, many years, way back in the centuries, pre-Christian and uh, more recently during the time of the penal laws when it was used uh, as a place of pilgrimage or a place of uh, church really, as a mass rock uh, by the local people and has for many, many generations also been used by the people of North Kerry and around the particular people with associations with St. Brendan, etc. And of course it is associated with St. Brendan as he is reputedly uh, baptised here. He was supposed to be baptised by his foster father, Bishop Erk of Kilmiley, uh, way back in 484 AD. Of course, one of the legends associated with the well is that at the baptism of St. Brendan, three weathers or three sheep sprung out of the well, and this was meant to be a fee for St. Erk for performing the baptism of Brendan. Tommy O'Connor at the Ardfert Holy Well. And uh, the virtual event that we were mentioning, of course, uh, has uh, 100 people as, as, as its maximum to attend. And we hope that actually happens for you as well. But maybe, Sister Helen, people who won't be able to attend on the day could visit their own local holy well. What would your suggestion be? Yes, in small groups, obviously, in groups that are acceptable with the limitations we have at the minute. Well, we'll put the details uh, to the event on our own website page mm-hmm. as well. Sister Helen Greeley and Father Brian Grogan, thank you both for joining us this evening on The Leap of Faith. Okay, and thank you for having us. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Finally this evening, the Methodist Church in Ireland made history this week when the Reverend Dr. Sa Yambasu became the first national leader of colour in one of Ireland's four main churches. His theme for his year in office is People First Under God. He joins me on the line now. Dr. Yambasu, congratulations on your appointment. Can you take me back to the formation of your faith? Where did that start and who influenced you? It actually started in my own home country. I come from Sierra Leone in West Africa. And um, I was taught from the beginning in the sense that, and I'm going to be really brief, that my father um, was the one who first came into contact with a Christian missionary, a Methodist Christian missionary, an English missionary who was preaching in the area in, in which he used to visit and my father became a Christian. So he came back to his village. At that time, there was no Christianity in my village at all. We just worshipped in a traditional way and asked to start the uh, worship of Christ in the village. He was allowed and he started with us, his family, at that time. And uh, whatever he had from the missionary, whenever he went, he came and shared with us. So that was my first contact with Christianity. Your wife is also a minister. Yes. Yeah, my wife is a Methodist minister and... Um, when I was studying at Edge Hill College uh, in my first year, the first Christmas in Ireland, I was invited by a friend to go to uh, Longford for my Christmas holiday. And I actually spoke in my wife's church. My, my wife was there and her family. And a year later, my wife actually uh, came to college, candidate for the ministry. She was a teacher before that. And then candidate for the ministry. And she came to College to study for to be a, a minister in the church, and that's actually where my wife and I met. I often joke with people that 
you know, when you go to theological college, you hear, you've had a call from God, and uh, people think when you go to theological college, you're just there, and you're just reading the Bible, and nothing else interests you. And I tell them, no, it's not really true. Because, obviously, my wife and I met in theological college, so there were other things, too, that we were interested in. So we got married, and then we moved on to Cambridge, and when I went to do my uh, postgraduate studies uh, there in Cambridge. So she is a minister in the Methodist Church. She is serving presently in the Mount Melek, Portlaoise, and Atai. And in a month's time, she will be moving to Primary Town in in northern in northern Ireland. Finally, has this your appointment made any significance uh, to the immigrant community in Ireland? I would say it will make a huge difference to them in terms of knowing that there is somebody who is also an immigrant who has always been working in Ireland since I came here for the last 20 and uh, odd years. I have been working stationed largely in multicultural churches, like in Galway. We had about 15 different nationalities in our church there. Now in Waterford, we have about 13 different nationalities. And my work always, wherever I have gone, has not been concerned focused wholly and solely in the church. In fact, most of my work, wherever I have worked, has also focused on the wider society because I know and I believe strongly that if the wider society is encouraged uh, to make society accessible to everyone that comes there, welcome them, show them hospitality, support them, then not only the people who are coming are going to benefit from that, but the larger society is going to benefit from that as well. So my being appointed to this position for them is really affirming the importance of their views being represented and their their interests being uh, sought. So it's hugely important. Reverend Dr. Sai Yambusa, thank you for joining us tonight on The Leap of Faith. Thank you ever so much. Thank you. And that's our Leap of Faith for this week. Join us next week for the final programme in the current series when we'll feature some live music in the studio. Our producer is Sheila O'Callaghan, our broadcast coordinator is Charlotte Holland and Mark Dwyer was on sound this evening. From them and me, Michael Cummins, good night.